From New York, this is Democracy Now! Riders are striking because we're worried that this industry is not one that's going to be able to sustain uh, a career. We are worried about things that most workers are worried about, like cost of living, corporate cannibalization, and stagnant wages. For the first time in 15 years, Hollywood writers have gone on strike. We'll speak to a striking writer who works on the ABC hit comedy Abbott Elementary. Then to Texas to look at yet another mass shooting. On Friday, a man armed with an AR-15 shot dead five of his neighbors, including a nine-year-old boy. Instead of calling for gun reform, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is being accused of dehumanizing the victims by calling the dead illegal immigrants. And 60 years ago today, the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama began. And how many of us remember that it was young children, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, some as young young as 9 or 10, who faced police dogs and faced high-power water hoses uh, and went to jail for our sake. We'll hear Birmingham native Angela Davis describing this pivotal moment in civil rights history. We'll also speak to longtime Birmingham civil rights activist Janice Kelsey, who took part in the Children's Crusade, and Paul Kicks, author of the new book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Medical workers in Sudan are warning of a mounting catastrophe as airstrikes continue to rock Khartoum despite a declared ceasefire between Sudan's army and a rival paramilitary group. Eighteen days into the fighting, Sudan's health care system has largely collapsed. Aid workers are describing increasingly desperate scenes with bodies piled in the streets of the capital and critical shortages of water, food and and fuel. The United Nations Refugee Agency warned Monday the crisis could push more than 800,000 people out of Sudan. This is Raouf Mazou, the UN's Assistant High Commissioner for Refugees. Without a, a quick resolution of this crisis, uh, we will continue to see more people forced to flee uh, in search of safety and, and basic assistance. Thus far, about 73,000 people have arrived in neighboring countries. Ukraine's government says a fresh wave of Russian missile attacks has destroyed an ammunition depot and injured dozens of civilians. This follows Russian attacks over the weekend, blamed for two dozen civilian deaths. On Monday, Ukraine's military struck inside Russian territory, derailing a freight train in the Russian border region of Bryansk, whose governor also said Ukrainian shelling on a Russian village killed four civilians. On Saturday, Ukrainian drone strikes blew up an oil depot in the Russian-annexed Crimean Peninsula. Meanwhile, while the leader of the private Russian mercenary firm Wagner Group has threatened mutiny unless Moscow agrees to send his forces more ammunition as they battle for control of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Yevgeny Prigozhin lashed out against Russia's military establishment in a video posted on a Russian social media channel. Happy birthday, and happy birthday to Wagner Group. If the company is destined to die, it won't be at the hands of the Ukrainian army or NATO but because of our domestic bastard bureaucrats. 
On Monday, the Biden administration said Russia has suffered 100,000 casualties since December, with more than 20,000 Russian fighters killed in action. Many of the dead and wounded are Russian convicts whose sentences were pardoned in exchange for joining Wagner's mercenary army. President Joe Biden welcomed Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. to the White House Monday, saying the United States remains ironclad in its defense of the Philippines, including the South China Sea. The meeting came after Marcos granted the Pentagon access to four more of military bases in the Philippines and following the largest ever U.S.-Filipino joint war games in the South China Sea. Protesters gathered outside the White House Monday to denounce the military alliance. This is Nina Makalpanak of the group Bayan USA. Supposedly, we are going to reaffirm their special relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines. But we know that that means the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. Marcos is not welcome here. Stop selling out the Philippines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned Monday the United States could default on its debts as early as June 1st unless Congress takes action to raise the limit on the national debt. Yellen's warning came less than a week after House Republicans approved a bill to raise the debt limit in exchange for a 13 percent cut in discretionary spending, with huge cuts to programs including student debt relief, food assistance, Medicaid and renewable energy. On Monday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pressed ahead with a two-year suspension of the federal debt ceiling that would not contain federal spending limits. The Senate is set to hold a hearing on the debt ceiling this Thursday. And President Biden has called House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders to a White House meeting May 9th. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing on Supreme Court ethics reform today amidst a mounting series of scandals among justices. In recent weeks, it's been revealed that Justice Neil Gorsuch sold a property he co-owned to the head of a major law firm that has since had 22 cases before the Supreme Court. And ProPublica reports Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose gifts and payments from Texas billionaire and conservative activist Harlan Crow. In the latest revelations, Business Insider reports, the wife of U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts was paid $10.3 million in commissions as a job recruiter placing lawyers at elite law firms. Jane Sullivan Roberts earned hundreds of thousands of dollars from one law firm that argued a case before Chief Justice Roberts. Syria's government says one soldier was killed and seven people wounded earlier today as Israeli warplanes bombed the main airport in the northern city of Aleppo, knocking it out of service. This follows hundreds of Israeli attacks on Syria in recent years, including two similar Israeli airstrikes in Aleppo's airport in March. The airport is key to efforts to ship humanitarian relief to northern Syria following the devastating February 6 earthquakes that killed more than 50,000 people, including over 6,000 Syrians. Palestinian prisoner Khader Adnan has died in an Israeli prison following an 87-day hunger strike. Adnan began refusing food in February to protest his arrest under Israel's so-called administrative detention program, the policy of holding Palestinians without charge for up to years at a time. Human rights groups say Israel is holding more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners under the policy. 
In Brazil, at least three Yanomami indigenous leaders were killed over the weekend after heavily armed illegal miners stormed a village. The attack comes as Brazil's government continues its operation targeting illegal miners in Yanomami territory. The efforts were launched by President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva as part of his campaign to protect the Amazon and indigenous communities. Lula has legally recognized six indigenous territories, a move crucial to protecting indigenous land from illegal miners and loggers. This is Lula speaking Friday. I do not want any indigenous land to remain undemarcated during my term in office. It is a commitment I have made and a commitment to you since the campaign. We cannot allow what happened in the Yanomami lands in the state of Rarema to happen again. This cannot happen again to any of the indigenous people. Hollywood writers have gone on strike for the first time in 15 years. The Writers Guild of America, which represents more than 11,000 movie and TV writers, say pay and working conditions have deteriorated in recent years due to the rising of streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime. After headlines, we'll go to Hollywood for the latest. Millions of people took to the streets around the world to mark May Day, calling for livable wages and stronger labor protections. In Latin America, workers in Guatemala denounced corruption and intensifying repression in the country. In Chile, police clashed with protesters in the capital, Santiago. Thousands also rallied in Argentina and Venezuela, where U.S. sanctions have exacerbated poverty. In Canada, tens of thousands of federal workers have reached a deal with the government that includes higher wages, bringing an end to Canada's largest-ever public sector strike for about one 100,000 workers, but more than 35,000 revenue agency workers who've been on strike since mid-April are still in negotiations. In Lebanon, migrant domestic workers led a march in Beirut, demanding better working conditions and protections. In Sri Lanka, workers protested a bailout agreement with the International Monetary Fund as the country faces its worst economic crisis in history. In the United Kingdom, nurses and other workers with the National Health Service walked off the job as they continued to demand higher wages. In more news from Europe, hundreds of thousands took to the streets across France as opposition grows against against President Emmanuel Macron's move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Close to 300 protesters were arrested as violence erupted in several cities, including Paris, with police firing tear gas at demonstrators. This is a protester in Paris. I'm more determined than ever. Macron has to stay on for four more years. We will go on for four more years. No problem. I'm here. There will be more of us. We will win in the end. I'm convinced. And in Puerto Rico, protesters rallied outside the San Juan offices of the Financial Oversight and Management Board, a non-elected body imposed by the U.S. government that controls the island's budget. Workers demanded the board's expulsion from Puerto Rico as debt has led to unprecedented austerity measures, including cuts to public education, pensions and worker benefits. This is a teacher from Vieques, where protesters pushed out the U.S. Navy 20 years ago at the May Day action in San Juan Monday. Vieques is a reflection of what happens in the rest of the country. It is also the reflection of the greatest battles in the country. As we say today, the U.S. Navy did not withdraw. We took them out. The board will not withdraw. We need to take them out. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. For the first time in 15 years, over 11,000 Hollywood TV and movie writers have gone on strike. 
The strike began at midnight Pacific time over contract and after contract negotiations failed. In a statement, the Writers Guild of America said writers are facing a, quote, existential crisis, in part because pay and working conditions have deteriorated in recent years due to the rise of streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime. The union said, quote, the company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce and their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing, unquote. The strike is expected to halt Hollywood productions and force late-night TV shows to go dark. They'll run tape. On Monday, Jimmy Fallon, the host of The Tonight Show, voiced support for his writers ahead of the start of the strike. I support my writers, uh, but we have a lot of uh, staff and crew that will be affected by this, you know, but, you know, they got to get a fair deal. So, uh, yeah, I'll do whatever I can to support them, and hopefully there is no strike and they can figure out a deal. I hope not either. Yeah, I need, I need my writers. I need them real bad. Yeah, I got no show without my writers. That was Jimmy Fallon at the Met Gala, where Quinta Brunson also spoke. She's the creator of the award-winning ABC hit comedy, Abbott Elementary. I'm a member of WGA and support WGA and, you know, them getting what we, us, us, getting what we need. So I hope that no one wants to strike, but I hope that we're able to rectify this, whatever that means. That was Quinta Brenson, creator of the award-winning ABC hit comedy, Abbott Elementary. We're joined now by Brittany Nichols, writer on Al Abbott Elementary, who's now on strike, a Los Angeles-based captain for Writers Guild of America's Wet. Brittany Nichols, welcome to Democracy Now! The strike is just hours old at this point. Also, congratulations on Abbott Elementary. Um, <clears throat> what an am amazing, fantastic show about the Philadelphia schools and the amazing teachers and the kids inside. But I wanted to ask you, starting with what's happening right now and what you're demanding as you go to the picket lines. Um, we are demanding that this industry be one that can sustain a career. Uh, it's sort of a, as simple as that. We have a consistently profitable business. But right now, the actions of the studios are ones that seem like they only care about Wall Street. Uh, they're chasing a rabbit they're never going to catch. And in that pursuit, they're running over the workers of this industry. So explain exactly how it works. You know, people watch these TV shows and movies nonstop, but really have very little idea of what goes into making them uh, and why exactly streaming has, well, you talk about creating a gig economy. Explain what you mean. So the studios have devalued our contributions. Um, they have shifted the industry to prioritize streaming while not following that up with the actions of making sure that our pay reflects those changes. Um, a lot of the ways that writers are able to sustain a career are through residuals. That means that we're taking uh, – part in that profit participation when a show gets re-aired or a show gets sold or a movie gets aired, that's when we get a little bit of that pie. And the amount of the pie that we're getting in streaming is almost non-existent. And talk about the various streaming companies, who you are actually negotiating with. Name names. Uh, well, there's Hulu, uh, Peacock, HBO Max, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, Apple TV, 
plus <laughs> a lot of pluses uh netflix and amazon i believe are the the big ones and explain the position they're taking uh, i mean they're taking the position of rejecting our proposals and refusing to make a counter uh, with all of our major proposals. That is the feedback that we've gotten thus far. They have forced us to go on strike by not engaging. They sort of have said, we do not care that you all can no longer make a career in this industry. Uh, they just want to continue to get as much work out of us for the least amount of money. Um, I think that that's not something that's unique to our industry. Um, it's something that has been happening and will continue to happen. And uh, we're standing up to it. We have to take a stand or there won't be television writers and, anymore. They will negotiate us out of existence. And Brittany, explain how the networks are connected to the streaming services. It's not two entirely separate spheres. Yeah, so the studios all own these services. I mean, they came up with it. Writers didn't come up with these streaming services. They came up with them. Um, that is a large part of the profit that they are now bringing in, um, and they continue to invest in these services. So, you know, every three years, you probably hear these studios crying poor and behaving as if they're like these mom and pop businesses while they rake in billions and billions of profits. Um, but they are the ones who caused this shift, and so they should be responsible for uh, paying the workers that are now providing the product that they continue to turn out and put on these streaming services fairly. In March, you shared a graph of writers working at MBA minimum. MBA stands for Minimum Basic Agreement. Talk about the problems with compensation in your industry, especially for writers of color like yourself. You also tweeted, our minimum wage has become our ceiling. Yes. So, it used to be that, uh, I think 10 years ago, a third of writers were working at that at that baseline. And now half of all writers are working at that baseline. TV writer pay has fallen uh, 23% when you adjust for inflation. Um, so it's it's really affecting every writer from staff writer all the way up to showrunners. Um, it, it's a, a product of this corporate cannibalization and are decreased, not even just stagnant wages, are, are making it impossible for anyone to put a career together. Can you talk about what happens next? I mean, for people who watch TV, the late night shows will now go to tape. You had people like Colbert um, and others expressing support for the Writers Guild of America. Colbert is a member of the Writers Guild of America, showing pictures of all the writers saying, we can't do it without them. So what happens now as you take to the streets, as you take to the picket line today across the country? Yeah, writers are the backbone of this industry. Uh, nothing gets made without us. Um, and I think that the studios will be in for quite a rude surprise uh, when they realize that though they do not value us or our contributions, um, they do not have a product without us. Uh, we will be at the studios protesting, or not protesting, picketing, um, and you know, joining each other in solidarity so that we can all go through this as a guild. We are committed to making sure that all of our writers, you know, make it to the other side of this because we know there will be another side because we know we're going to win. Uh, there's there is no industry without writers. We are the only generative people in this industry. Everything else is a is a 
you know, based on what is on that page. And if we're not putting anything on that page, there's nothing that anyone else can can do. Can you talk about the shows that will be affected or is it everything across the board? And how does this affect the later season, which, of course, is going to put a lot of pressure on the uh, producers, um, the people who are demanding these shows? And what happened with deadlines? Did they move them up to get shows written before the strike? That was up to each individual writer, how much they were going to deal with people looking to have the the materials turned in um, by yesterday. Uh, I know a lot of people wanted to turn their stuff in because then, you know, if you complete your assignment, then then they have to pay you, even though we'll be on strike, you will have completed your contract. Um, So there was a lot of pressure on writers. And you know, that shows exactly what our labor is worth. When we withhold our labor, people panic. People were scared that there wasn't going to be anything in the pipeline to go out and create. And that's true. Um, We are going to continue to withhold our labor. And that means everything from not taking meetings to not putting anything in that pipeline to not showing up for work. And that means that shows might get delayed. I mean, Abbott Elementary was supposed to go back to the room this week. Uh, We are a show that writes while we air. And so if this strike goes on for a significant period of time, our show will not come out on time. And that could change the amount of episodes, which people I'm sure will be very upset about. It could change the air date. It could change a lot of different things because there just will not be things going into that pipeline. There will not be us participating in any thing that will bring profit to this industry. And that is going to cause a disruption. That's what we're counting on. Finally, the 2007 strike, um, 2007-2008, went on for 100 days. Uh, What did you gain from that strike? What did you accomplish? So I was not part of that strike. I was, uh, I think, still a teenager at that (laughs) point. Uh, But one of the things that we gained was um, domain over the, the Internet, that's when all of these streaming services were first popping up and, you know, YouTube was a thing. And, and what the studios were saying was that you all should not have any uh, payment for anything that goes online. So, you know, we're used to them saying that we should not have access to our fair cut of the pie because they, they've done it every three years for the, for the entirety of the existence of our union. And if we had not made those gains, if we had not gone on strike and and put our foot down back then, there wouldn't be television writers now. We've already seen you know, how important it is for us to stand up for ourselves because could you imagine all of the streaming shows that you know and love Writers not making any money off of those. That was the future that the studios wanted. They want to continue to push us down and bully us. Um, And it's not even a matter of we don't want it to happen. We can't let it happen or television writers will will no longer be a thing. Television staffs will no longer be a thing because no one will be able to afford it. And before we go, if you can talk about your own show, the amazing Abbott Elementary, about the Philadelphia teachers, um, who the show's first season was nominated for seven primetime Emmys, winning three. Um, why it is so important to see shows like yours, Brittany? I, I think that, <laughs> you know, right now, a lot of workers are feeling really downtrodden. I mean, I I think that, you know, the issues that we're facing are 
rampant all across this country. And a show like Abbott, where you're seeing, you know, working class people trying to do their best, it is a show where you can get some form of relief, some form of release. That's important. People want to be able to enjoy the time off that they have from performing labor. And we're lucky enough that our labor is what uh, allows people to do that. And we want to get back to doing that. We want to get back to providing people an outlet, um, letting people have something to enjoy and have something to look forward to. Brittany Nichols, want to thank you for being with us, a Los Angeles-based captain of the Writers Guild of America West and a writer on Abbott Elementary. Coming up 60 years ago today, the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama began. Stay with us. the power patty smith here on democracy now democracynow.org the war and peace report i'm amy goodman we turn now to look back at an historic protest in birmingham alabama 60 years ago today beginning may 2nd 1963 thousands of children began a week long series of protests against segregation in birmingham the campaign became known as the Children's Crusade. When the children took to the streets, the local head of the police, Bull Connor, used high-pressure fire hoses and dogs to attack the children, many of whom were arrested. Images of the police violence was broadcast around the world. One photograph captured the moment when a white police officer allowed a large German shepherd dog to attack a young black boy. The Children's Crusade began at the 16th Street Baptist Church. Four months after the protests began, the Ku Klux Klan bombed the church, killing four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, and Denise McNair. In a moment, we'll be joined by two guests to talk about the Children's Crusade in Birmingham. But first, let's turn to the scholar and activist Angela Davis, who grew up in Birmingham. This is Angela speaking in 2013. And how many of us remember that it was young children, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, some as young, young as 9 or 10, who faced police dogs and faced high-power water hoses uh, and went to jail for our sake. And so there is deep symbolism in the fact that these four young girls' lives were consumed by that bombing. 
It was children who were urging us to imagine a future that would be a future of equality and justice. That was Angela Davis in 2013. We're joined now by two guests, Paul Kicks, writer and author of the new book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. He's joining us from his home in Connecticut. And in Birmingham, longtime civil rights activist Janice Kelsey is with us. She joined the Children's Crusade as a 16-year-old in 1963. She wrote about her experience in her own book, I Woke Up With My Mind on Freedom. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Janice Kelsey, let's begin with you. It was 60 years ago today. I'm sure for you, it doesn't yeah. seem that long ago. Talk about what happened. I remember 60 years ago today, I woke up with my mind on freedom. I had attended student nonviolent workshops, and I was prepared because I finally understood that it was more than just segregation. It was inequality. And Reverend James Bevel empowered us as youth to do something about it. And I was willing to do that. And talk about what you did. Talk about what it meant to take to the streets and the police violence in response. Well, in the preparation sessions that were held at 16th Street Baptist Church, we had seen film of demonstrations in other places so I saw people being hit, being called names, um, and being mistreated for demonstrating. We were told that if you participate, some of this may happen to you, but this is a nonviolent movement and you cannot respond except to pray or sing a freedom song. So I went into it knowing that there may be some level of danger, but I was so uh, incensed at having been mistreated all these years until I was willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary to uh, take steps to change the environment. Just over four months later, the beginning of that children's crusade, the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church was bombed for little girls, four young people, young women, were killed. One of them was Cynthia Wesley. You share the last name of Cynthia Wesley, Janice. Um, uh, uh, Cynthia, explain what happened. Well, that Sunday morning, I was at the church where I attended, and we had a speaker up. Our pastor interrupted the speaker and announced that 16th Street Baptist Church had been bombed and that there were some casualties. And that meant someone died. He said a prayer and he dismissed church. Well, when we got home, people were calling our home. I have a large family. There were nine siblings. 
and my mom would not allow anyone else to answer the phone. And I kept hearing her say, no, not our family. Finally, when the news came on, the national news, they identified the casualties. Cynthia Wesley was one. I met Cynthia in elementary school when she was adopted by Claude and Gertrude Wesley, who were educators and friends of our family, but not related. I was invited to come to their home for lawn parties. We went on field trips together. And Cynthia had just come to my high school. She was a ninth grader. I was an 11th grader. And I had not known anyone in my age group to die, let alone be killed at church. I was devastated to hear Cynthia had died. But there was a connection with the other girls as well. Carol Robinson's father, Alvin Robinson, was my band teacher in elementary school. And his wife taught at the same school where my sister taught, and they were friends. Denise McNair was 11, and her father, Chris McNair, was our milkman. He used to deliver milk and juice to the home. Addie Collins, I did not know her family, but she had a sister in the same class with one of my brothers. And, and I was just devastated because I thought people were proud of the courage that we had displayed in the spring of the year. I didn't know it made someone so angry that they would react in such a violent way. So let's bring Paul Kicks into this conversation, uh, who has just published the book Today, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Paul, if you can talk about why you wrote this book, talk about your interracial family, George Floyd, and how that connects to what began 60 years ago today. I'll take the last part first. I mean, there was from emancipation in 1863 to 1963, there were no there was no equality, no sense of anything that spring changed everything. And to have somebody like Janice to be able to share this 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 segment with someone like Janice, is just it gives me goosebumps because just behind me, you see my twin boys. I married my wife, Sonia, in a, in a Jim Crow state of Texas. We live today on a shaded street where nobody harasses us for who we are. That's because of what Janice just talked about. It's the ability to not only you know put your life on the line in the moment, but to think about the lives ahead, the, the people in the future that might benefit from your actions in Birmingham. So my... <laughs> My wife, Sonia, grew up in inner city Houston, one neighborhood away from uh, where George Floyd grew up. She had her cousins went to the same high school, Yates High, as George. Sonia was the same age as George uh, when George was murdered, 46. And so we that's a long way to say that we did not shield our kids from that sort of coverage. It was the first time they'd ever seen something like that happen, where an innocent black man was killed by police officers. And our twin boys, who are, again, behind me there in that photo, they were then nine. They had a lot of questions about what that meant 
for America. There was a 2020, the latter half of 2020 was an incredibly difficult time. You know, the boys would often run from the room in tears because of what they saw of, of George Floyd, because of what they saw. Jacob Blake was somebody else who was shot by Kenosha, Wisconsin cops. You know, one of my twin boys ran from the room saying, why do they keep trying to kill us? It was a hard time, 2020. And I settled on a book project that very quickly became a family project, which was a way to try to inspire our three kids about how they might have courage in their own lives. And that extends back to what I see as the most pivotal uh, period in the whole of the 20th century. And that is the spring of 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. And in particular, what happened on May 2nd and on May 3rd and on May 4th and on May 4th, excuse me, D-Day, double D-Day. And through that weekend, the Children's Crusade. Let me turn to Vincent Harding for a moment. In 2008, I interviewed uh, Vincent Harding, the pioneering historian, theologian, and civil rights activist. In 1963, Martin Luther King invited him to come to Birmingham, Alabama, to help with the campaign. King came especially to our attention uh, there in Birmingham because there was a whole development in which many of the protesters were young people, in some cases children, who came to play a crucial role in leading the struggle against segregation partly because many of the adults were afraid to, couldn't afford to, were worried about what would happen to them uh, and their livelihoods if they did it. And the children took the role. They were arrested after the dogs and the fire hoses. They were put in jail. Uh, They were not able, after a while, uh, SCLC wasn't able to get all of the bond money that was needed to get everyone out. And King, I remember very much one Friday afternoon in his uh, motel room, simply said, I don't know what I can do to get the money to get these folks out, young and old, but I do know that what I can do is to go in there with them. And so he then uh, led a march that was against the law at the time, and he was arrested and put into jail. It was in that context that he took the opportunity to work on that now famous uh, letter from Birmingham jail. That was the late Vincent Harding in 2008, the great historian, scholar, and pastor. Um, He helped write King's famous anti-war speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence. Well, this is Dr. Martin Luther King reading part of his letter from the Birmingham jail from the documentary King, a filmed record. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. But your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. 
There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. From the documentary King, a filmed record, Dr. Martin Luther King reading his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he had written just weeks before the Children's Crusade. Paul Kicks, you talked about D-Day and double D-Day, the horrific picture that begins your book, this famous image um, from it was May 3rd, uh, 1963, of the 14-year-old African-American boy, this German shepherd, biting his stomach. And he is—he um, has such poise. He doesn't seem to be responding, uh, but with dignity. Talk about D-Day and double D-Day. It— altered everything. Janice was saying just a moment ago about Reverend James Bevel. Uh, to go into D-Day and double D-Day was effectively because there was no other choice. Birmingham adults were not going to protest. They, were, they would very likely lose their jobs. That's what James Bevel realized. So what the children did, we've seen those images. We've seen people like Janice being attacked with fire hoses. But I just want to frame for the audience what that actually meant. Those fire hoses were mounted on metal tripods that frankly looked like it was meant for artillery. It could, it could knock mortar loose from brick. It could strip bark from a tree at a distance of more than 100 feet. A lot of times kids were hit at less than 50 feet. Some of the raw footage from that day shows, from Double D Day, shows just horrific, horrific violence. Kids' clothes just basically disintegrating on them as the water hits them. Kids backflipped in the air as the water hits their face or chest. Kids writhing in pain as the Birmingham Fire Department and Birmingham Police Department keep the water hose right 
on them at a distance of, again, 15 feet. Sometimes there was a girl. I will never forget this. There was a girl in Birmingham who was slid down the street by the power of the fire hose as she is just writhing in pain and screaming in terror, 50 feet, 60 feet, 70 feet. The, the camera crews just watched her pass. Then there were the German shepherds like Walter Gadsden, the the the, the, the boy you, you referenced a moment ago. Um, the violence was so grotesque that there were literally war photographers who'd been there, who'd seen battle in World War II. And they said this was as bad as anything they'd ever seen. There was a New York Times reporter by the name of R.W. Apple, who would later be famed. And he said he had never, across all of his years, in all of numerous war zones, he had never seen anything like the images out of Double D-Day, May 3rd, 1963. Um, he had never seen that level of violence uh, Anywhere else in his life. We're going to go to and break. So that is what happened on that day. The courage that, that, that those kids showed that day, the faith that they showed that these images would actually alter America. Again, it led me to write this book uh, it, it, because I believe so fiercely that those 10 weeks, those that week in particular, the week that we're in right now, altered America forever and for the better. We're talking to Paul Kicks, author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. And Janice Kelsey, longtime civil rights activist. She was 16 when she participated in the Children's Crusade. We're going to break, then coming back to talk more about this pivotal moment in history. Stay with us. Alabama by John Coltrane, recorded in 1963, after the September bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four little girls. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In 2013, I interviewed Sarah Collins Rudolph, who survived the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, September 15, 1963. She was 12 years old, hit with shards of glass, lost an eye, was hospitalized for months. Her older sister, Addie Mae Collins, who was 14, died in the blast. Sarah Collins Rudolph described what happened. Yes, I was in the uh, latest lounge uh, when the bomb went off. You know, I remember uh, Cynthia, Denise, and Carol walking in, inside the uh, lounge area and went over in where the stalls was. So when they came out, 
they, Denise passed by Ed and asked my sister to tie the sash on her dress. And I was across from them at the sink. And when Denise asked her to tie the sash, and I was looking at her when she, when she began to tie it. And then all of a sudden, boom, I never did see her finish it, finish tying it. So all I could do was say, call out Jesus, because I didn't know what that loud sound were. And then I called my sister, Addie, 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 and she didn't answer me. So uh, I thought that they had, the girls had ran on the other side of the church where the Sunday school area was. But uh, all of a sudden I heard a voice outside saying, somebody bombed the 16th Street Church. And it was so clear to me as though that this person was right there. But, this, but they was outside where the crater was, had a bomb in the church where, where it bombed the hole there. And all the debris came rushing in, and I was hit in my face with glass, and also in my both eyes. But when they, the man came in, his name was Samuel Rutledge, he came in and, and picked me up and carried me out of the cradle and the ambulance was out there waiting and they rushed me to Hillman's Hospital which they changed the name it's now UAB Hospital so they rushed me on up to the, uh, in the uh, to the operating room and they operated on both my eyes and took the glass from out of my face and I had glass in my chest and stomach. So they operated on me. And when I went back to the room, and I stayed there in the hospital for about two and a half months. But the time when they took the uh, bandage off my eyes, the doctor asked me, what do I see out of my right eye? I told him I couldn't see anything out of my right eye. and when he took it off my left eye, all I could see was just a little light. And, of course, you lost your sister as well, Addie Mae Collins, your older sister. You were 12. She was 14. Did you feel you could not find a safe place? I mean, after all, you were bombed in a church, the place you went for sanctuary. Yes, you, you would think that going to church is really a safe place, but it wasn't. You know, uh, somebody that would put a bomb in the church and kill four innocent girls, you know, that's just the work of the devil because that should never have happened. These girls was young, and we was waiting that day for a youth service. But uh, by the bomb going off, we didn't get a chance to attend youth service. That graphic description of the bombing that happened four months, little more than four months after the Children's Crusade. Um, we're continuing with Janice Kelsey, whose name was similar to Cynthia Wesley, one of the four girls who was killed. And so people called in condolences to Janice's family, thinking maybe it was her. But she was active in the Children's Crusade at the age of 16 in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and we're joined by Paul Kicks, author of You Have to Be Prepared. 
prepared to die that chronicles this pivotal moment in U.S. history. Um, Janice Kelsey, uh, after the protests, and you were arrested in this period 60 years ago? 60 years ago today, I was arrested for parading without a permit. Did you ever get slammed by those water hoses or were you arrested before? I was arrested before the water hoses and the dogs. To show, I think, how powerful um, your protest was, maybe, um, if you could talk about those who criticized King and the other leaders saying, you shouldn't put children on the front line. I think that was um, Malcolm X who said, real men don't put their children on the firing line. Robert Kennedy also criticized this strategy. Your response to them? Well, we didn't have any other choice. If our parents had protested, uh, they could have lost their jobs. They would have gone to jail. There was no one to take care of us. But as Bevel pointed out to us, we really didn't have anything to lose. We were getting a second-class education. We had all kinds of inequities put upon us. And if we wanted that to change, we were going to be the change agents. We didn't have anything to lose. Paul Kicks, if you could talk about a secret meeting that was held um, that included James Bevel and Dr. King, and then the unbelievable fundraiser that was held in Harry Belafonte's apartment, who we just lost at the age of 96, and what that meant for this movement. So in January of 1963, the SELC had a secret meeting in uh, Dorchester, Georgia, and they didn't even invite the uh, the all of the executive directors. It was Martin Luther King Jr. didn't even invite his own father to this meeting because they wanted to discuss what they called the most dangerous idea in the civil rights movement. And that was, should we go to Birmingham? And it was a huge risk because the SELC was broke. The SELC had been criticized for years for ineffective leadership. The SELC just one year prior had staged a massive and absolutely abysmal failure of a campaign in Albany, Georgia. The SELC was sneered at by other civil rights groups at the time, but by the same token that they were sneered at by the press, be it Northern press or Southern press. And so this campaign, they decided we are in that secret meeting in that in, in Dorchester, they thought, well, we are either going to break segregation in Birmingham or we are going to be broken by it. There was a real concern that the SCLC would die as a result of this. And in fact, there was a real concern that a lot of SCL members would actually die in Birmingham just for taking part. King even delivered mock eulogies in Birmingham, excuse me, in Dorchester uh, in preparation for what they thought uh, Birmingham would be like. And then to, to you asked the other half of this. And so that Belafonte, was Bevel, played, Shuttlesworth, King and Abernathy who had this secret meeting. 
There were there were some the, the accounts vary as to how many there were. Um, it is somewhere between eleven and fifteen people. There were a few other people there as well. Um, but yes, there was a core group of people there. It was Fred Shuttlesworth, Wyatt Walker was there, James Bevel was there, King was there. Those are the four people that end up being uh, the four protagonists in my book. And then a secondary character. Uh, and hugely influential throughout the entire campaign was Harry Belafonte. And if we flash forward a couple of months, this secret meeting happens in January of 1963. In late March of 1963, just days before uh, Project Confrontation, as it was known, uh, the Birmingham campaign, that was a secret name for it, Project Confrontation. Just days before that campaign launched, there was the just as large gamble as to how exactly they were going to try to finance it. And so they go to Harry Belafonte's apartment in New York, and while they are there, Fred Shuttlesworth, who was kind of a, a regionally known civil rights activist, Janice would know uh, who, who he was, uh, but he was a Birmingham pastor who was absolutely fearless. And he wowed the donors there that night with just basically stories of his courage and bravery and faith. Uh, and 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 at the end of his speech, he said, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. And that was the line that that just amazed the donors. And that night in Belafonte's apartment, they raised four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars for the Birmingham campaign, which is akin, I think today I don't have the calculator in front of me, but something something like four million dollars in, in in modern currency. And it was the largest ever it was the largest ever fundraiser uh, in the SCLC's history. And that was the money that they used, orchestrated almost entirely by Harry Belafonte to then go into Birmingham. Finally, Janice Kelsey, we just have a minute, but I wanted to end with your voice. Sixty years ago today, you were arrested in the Children's Crusade. Your thoughts at this moment and message about what's happening today. It's very discouraging and frightening to see leaders in legislation and governors who are trying to push back on the gains that were made due to the tremendous sacrifices that were made by young people 60 years ago. Not just uh, people like me who went to jail, but people like the four girls who were killed at church and the four young men who were killed in the communities that same Sunday. A lot of blood sacrifice went forth in order for us to gain the, uh, the measures that were gained. And it is frightening to see the big push by uh, people in leadership positions to return to the way we were. And I'm hoping and praying that our young people will step up again and say, no, we're not going back. Janice Kelsey. That's what those two legislators did. Thank you so much for being with us. Longtime civil rights activist in Birmingham, Alabama, and Paul Kicks. You have to be prepared to die, his new book. Thank you. Mm-hmm.